Our reading is taken from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 to, 8, 8 to 18, page 1195 in the Church Bibles. So, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What, what you heard, heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Thank you, Robin, for reading that for us. Um, last Sunday, we started in 2 Timothy, and we saw about passing on the baton of the gospel from generation to generation, how the baton in, at this point had got to Timothy from Paul, how he was to pass it on, how he was to keep it going, and how it's got to us, and we are to pass it on as well. Well, today we're going to see a bit more of what that actually involves. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word and pray, please, you would teach us, help us to sit under it, ready to listen to what you have to say to us, to be challenged and equipped by you and sent out to be obedient to your word joyfully because of who you are and what you've done for us. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine when you get home uh, that there is on your doormat a letter, an envelope. Now, I know this is going to require some imagination. There isn't a post on a Sunday for a start. And who writes letters? Uh, most will go for emails, although I'm sure some still write letters. But anyway, on your doormat as you return home, there's a letter. And it is... Okay, this requires imagination. It is from a pastor of a church, pastor of a church in Iran. 
We've heard of another place in the world, in Myanmar, where there's suffering for, for being a Christian. This pastor in Iran is suffering. He has been leading a church, but has been arrested under the charge of propaganda against the Islamic Republic. During interrogation, he refused to give up names of other Christians and so was beaten. And he's written to you. On the Open Doors website, you can read a description of a pastor like this. But I want you to imagine he's written to you. What would this pastor say to you, do you think? What would you expect there to be in this letter? Maybe you'd expect him to describe the sufferings, the interrogation, the torture, the beatings. Maybe you'd expect him to say, please pray for me. Please pray that this would end, that my suffering would end, that the suffering of fellow believers would end. Not a wrong thing to pray. Maybe that's what you'd expect. Well, you open up the letter and you start to read it. And you see that this pastor is not concerned about himself and his own sufferings. He's got an instruction for you. And he says, don't. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, but join me. Join me in suffering. Well, that would be a surprise, wouldn't it? We wouldn't expect that. We'd expect someone suffering to be focused more on themselves. But no, this pastor is saying to you, join me. That's what Paul does in this letter to Timothy. Paul is in prison in Rome because he proclaimed the gospel. And verse 8 that Robin just read for us says this. Have a look, verse 8. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, rather join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's quite some statement, isn't it? It's not that Paul is saying, I wish I was with you, Timothy. I wish I was out of this prison cell and able to go around freely. Although I'm sure he, he would have liked that, would have preferred it. But he says to Timothy, no, no, you join me. Join me in suffering. It's like he's saying, there's room in the cell with me. There may not have been, but he's saying, there's room with me. Come next to me. Pull up some chains. Pull up some manacles. Pull up some stocks and join me. Now, of course, he's not actually expecting Timothy in Ephesus to travel over and actually be with him in the cell, but he's saying, where you are, Timothy, suffer for proclaiming the gospel. He's not saying go out of your way to find suffering. He's just saying, look, if you proclaim the gospel, it's going to come and be prepared to do it. Suffer with me. Why? Why would anyone be prepared to do this? Well, we're going to get into the passage that was read and we're going to see, well, two things. Actually, the verse, verse 8 that I've just read, gives us a structure for the rest of the passage. I think you can split the rest of the passage into two parts, which go with what it says in verse 8. So Paul says there, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. 
And there you go, there are the two points. I didn't, on the back of the notice sheet, you'll see that there's no points written down there. If you want to make a note of them, please do. Um, but I didn't, know, I didn't quite get them in in time. So you're going to have to write them in yourself. If you want to make notes, you're very welcome to do so. Jot, jot something down on the notice sheet. Those are our two points, therefore. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of Paul. So we start with don't be ashamed of the gospel. In the verse, actually, it says there, don't be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord. But it's the same thing. A bit later on, Paul calls it the gospel, doesn't he? And that's why Paul is suffering. He's not in prison for doing some other, doing some other crime. He's not in prison for, uh, for stealing or, or anything like that. He's in prison because of the gospel. And he says to Timothy, that's why you're to suffer. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel. It is the gospel that you're to suffer for. Or verse 11 and 12, look down there, it says, And of this gospel I was appointed a, a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. It's all for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, look, if you're going to be prepared to join me in suffering, you need to be unashamed of the gospel. This message. Why? Why be unashamed of this gospel? Well, Paul summarises the gospel in verses 9 and 10. So have a look at verse 9. He says, he saved us. God saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, do you see the emphasis there in that verse? It is that uh, Paul is saying that the gospel was God's work, not our work, God's work. So he says that, you notice that, don't you? He says, he saved us and called us. It's God's doing. End of the verse there, second half. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. It is all about God, his work, his plan. He is the sole author of this and the main character in it. It originates with him, was achieved by him. Mankind doesn't make any contribution. We are not co-authors. We are not editors of this gospel. It is purely God's work. It doesn't originate with us. We contribute nothing to it. It is God's purpose. And then he explains God's purpose. And he goes back in time. Second half of verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. He's saying, look, if you want to know this gospel, this plan of God, this grace of God, you've got to go back in time. And it goes back before Paul, before Jesus's earthly ministry, before uh, Bethlehem and Jesus's birth, before the Old Testament. We go back and back and back. And Paul says, you've got to go back actually right back to before time itself. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? So what does Paul say happened before the beginning of time? Well, he says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now, as I was thinking about that in my preparation, I thought, what does that mean? What does that mean that God's grace 
was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I mean, we struggle, don't we, to get our heads around the idea of something happening before the beginning of time. How can anything happen before time exists? What's he talking about? And what, what does it mean for God to give his grace before the beginning of time? And I was pondering this. I was thinking, what, what is this actually saying God did? And then I noticed, as you probably have already done, that the sentence doesn't end there. And therefore, we need to look into verse 10 to help us to understand what happened before the beginning of time. Okay, so verse 9 says, uh, in the middle of verse 9, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, so Paul is saying in verse 10, it was then revealed. It was revealed in the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus. And what that's talking about is then Jesus' life, death and resurrection. That's what it's talking about, isn't it? So Paul's saying this grace was revealed when Jesus came. But it was given, verse 9, before the beginning of time. Now how do we get our heads around that? So God gave in Christ Jesus his grace before the beginning of time, but it was revealed when Jesus was born, lived, died and rose to, to life again. Maybe an illustration might help us, might not, uh, but I think it does. It's like when you buy a birthday present for someone, but you've spotted something, you've spotted it way in advance of their birthday, you think, yeah, that's the ideal gift. And you buy it, you find it, you go to the shop, you look online, you've found it, you've paid for it, you've made the sacrifice of actually paying the money, you've received it, you've wrapped it, and it's ready. And then time goes by and you get to that point where you go, and here it is, and it is revealed. The person unwraps the gift and it's revealed. Well, can I suggest, maybe it's a bit like that, but on a much, much bigger scale that God gave his grace in Christ Jesus to us before the beginning of time. That is, he purposed, he chose, he decided that Jesus would come and give his life for us. And in that sense, because God's plans cannot change, his purposes cannot be thwarted, therefore when God decides to do that, it is as good as done, it is as if he gave right then, before the beginning of time. He knew of us, his people, and he decided to give his son, and in doing so, he gave his son, as it were, before the beginning of time. But then it had to be revealed in time, when the time came, Jesus was born and lived and died and rose to life again. An incredible thing. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to go back before the beginning of time to the giving of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And then what happened in time? Well, we've already said, haven't we? Jesus' life, death, resurrection, which means that he destroyed death, verse 10, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul says that is, the, that is the gospel. Jesus coming, living, dying, rising to life. Which means death is defeated for those who trust in Jesus. Death is not the end. 
and you can have life and immortality if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus. Notice that is what is at stake. That is what Jesus holds out to us. That through what he has done, planned from before the beginning of time, he holds out to us the possibility of having life and immortality. Nothing less. And Paul goes straight on to saying, and therefore what his job is. Verse 11, he says, of this gospel I was appointed a herald. He's a herald. He declares it. It's like with trumpets and fanfare, he comes with an announcement to declare to the world, this is God's purpose, God's plan, God's grace given to us that we might have life. What a privilege to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher of that gospel. And he says, that's why I'm suffering. And he says, therefore, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to suffer. I'm not ashamed to be in prison, to be chained up, to be in an awful situation, because I'm a herald of this gospel of life. And Timothy, that's why you shouldn't be ashamed either. It's God's incredible purpose, his plan for etern from eternity, his grace poured out before time. It's God's great act of salvation revealed in Jesus through whom life and immortality comes. It may lead to suffering, but don't be ashamed. And can I encourage you, don't be ashamed of Jesus. I think it's easy for us to be ashamed of Jesus. When you're in conversation with people about Christianity, I think it's, it's maybe easier, isn't it, sometimes to say, I'm a Christian, or to say, I go to church. I mean, you might think, okay, that might get a bit of a negative reaction. But actually to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, Somehow there's something about that name, don't you think? That we can be just a little bit embarrassed about? Or if in conversation someone else says that they follow Jesus, we can just wince a little inside. Paul says, don't be ashamed. Oh, don't be ashamed of Jesus. After all, it's through him that you have life and immortality. Don't be ashamed of and Paul says then how um, not to be ashamed, how Timothy as a church leader was not to be ashamed. And he says two things in verses 13 and 14. Would you have a look at them? Top of the page there, verse 13 is the first thing. He says, what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. He says, what you heard you teach it. Keep that as the pattern of sound teaching. Don't be original, Timothy. Don't think, well, this Sunday I better come up with something new. I've got to keep people entertained. Better come up with something new, something original. No, Timothy, don't do that. Stick to the pattern of sound teaching. It's a bit like sometimes I think in, in art lessons, it was a long time ago I did art, um, 
that people are encouraged to copy works of art, famous works of art maybe. Maybe you imagine you've set yourself the task or you've been given the task of copying Van Gogh's sunflowers or something like that. If you do that, you're not at liberty to change it. You can't just say, well, I, I, I don't think I'll include that sunflower. I'll miss a bit off because I don't like that bit. That's not your task. Stick to the original. You're also not allowed to add bits of your own. You can't just add a bowl of ice cream in the foreground because you feel like it. No, you've got to stick to the original. Timothy, stick to the original. Stick to the pattern of sound teaching. That's the first thing he's to do. And second, guard it. Verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Timothy, you've got to guard it. Now, that must mean that the gospel is under attack. You don't need to guard something that's not precious, not valuable, but also not in danger of being attacked. So, Timothy, you've got to guard the gospel. Uh, to stick with the painting analogy, um, not only have you got to stick to the original, but you've got to be aware that there are others who are going to come in who are going to want to paint all over it, who are going to want to graffiti all over it or add their own bowl of ice cream or something. You've got to guard it. Stop people coming to do this. And that's a danger that still exists, isn't it? We've got to guard the gospel from those who would want to distort it, take bits away, add bits in. And Tim, Paul is saying to Timothy, look, when you do this, when you keep the gospel as he's taught it, as the pattern of sound teaching, as you defend it, you're going to suffer. People won't like it. Because the gospel is unpopular in every generation. Every generation will struggle with it. There'll be something about it people won't like. Which means, for us, if there is never anything that causes offence coming from the front, we can be sure we're not keeping to the pattern of sound teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that just because something offensive is said, <laughs> we're doing well, that doesn't follow, does it? But if we stick to the pattern of sound teaching, if we defend it, if we guard it, there will be things that will be offensive. There are a number of them. For instance, the Bible's teaching on sexuality and gender, or that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. Those are unpopular today. People will hate them. Maybe you struggle with them. I'd happily talk about that afterwards if you want to. Some churches, interestingly, have decided on a tactic where they will say, well, those controversial things, we'll, we just won't talk about them. We, we believe in them, we believe what the Bible says, but we're not going to talk about them openly up front, we're not going to teach them and preach them. Because if you've got those who aren't Christians, if they come, they're going to hear and they're going to be offended and then they'll leave. And actually they therefore say, well, therefore we just we kind of keep quiet about them. I think that is the wrong tactic. I think that's not fulfilling what Paul says here. I think Paul's saying here, be unashamed of the gospel. Preach it and teach it. Keep to the pattern of sound teaching, which means teaching it. You don't guard it by keeping it quiet. You guard the gospel by teaching it, by proclaiming it. 
even when it's unpopular, especially when it's unpopular. Well, that would seem like an overwhelming task, wouldn't it, for Timothy? We saw last week Timothy is in a difficult situation and, um, you know, it would be overwhelming to think, I've got to guard the gospel? I mean, you know, this is about life and immortality and it's down to me to keep this safe? What a terrifying prospect. But Paul reassures him, he does say, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. God is in, in you. And he can help you. And actually, there is encouragement a little earlier. You may have noticed that we skimmed over verse 12. Just have a look back at that. Paul says, uh, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, that is a valid translation of, of, that, fra- of that sentence. But um, it... it, it the, the second bit, when it says, and, uh, uh, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him, it, it's more literally my deposit. Uh, that he is able to guard my deposit. Now, when you say my deposit, that could be something that I've deposited, that I've given to him. But it could equally be my deposit, the thing given to me. And since it's the word deposit... And it is literally the word deposit. It's the same word that Paul then instructs Timothy when he says, guard the good deposit. So I think it's the same thing. My deposit, Paul's deposit, the thing is, I think is the thing that God's given him. In other words, the gospel. And he says there in verse 12, and I'm convinced that he, is, he God, is able to guard what I've entrusted to, what he's entrusted to me until that day. God will guard it. So Timothy, yes, you've got to guard it, but actually God will guard it as well. How will God guard it? Through you, Timothy, as the Holy Spirit works in you. So Timothy, you're not on your own. God will make sure it's safe, that the deposit is guarded, and he will do so through you, Timothy, but rely on the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit to help you to do this. You're not on your own. So Paul says to Timothy, be unashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is God's purpose from before the beginning of time revealed in Jesus for death to be defeated, life and immortality to be brought to light. Paul proclaimed it. Timothy, you now teach it and guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And suffering will come. And second, Paul says... Be unashamed of Paul. That's what he said in verse 8, isn't it? He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, I think the two are linked. The two are linked. Since Paul is in prison for the gospel, if Timothy is unashamed, is, sorry, if Timothy is ashamed of Paul, that's going to be, he's, un, he's ashamed of the gospel. And if he's ashamed of the gospel, he's going to be ashamed of Paul. So the two are connected. They're not identical, but they are connected. And Paul encourages Timothy to say, look, don't be ashamed of me and my chains being in prison. He could easily have been ashamed of him. But he says, don't be. And then why do we get these examples at the end of the chapter, which we get? 
Well, they are examples, real-life examples, of some who've been ashamed of Paul, and therefore the gospel, and one who wasn't. So have a look at them. Verse 15, we get those who are ashamed. He says, you know that, in e that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Well, that's quite a thing, isn't it? Paul in prison, and he's saying, everyone has deserted me. They've all left me. Including Phygelus and Homogenes. Great names, aren't they? But sadly, they'd left him too. And I wonder whether Paul includes that because, well, maybe Timothy knew of them. And maybe Timothy would have thought, everyone's deserted you? Surely, surely Phygelus and Homogenes, they, they would have been with you, wouldn't they, Paul? He says, no, they've gone too. They're not with me. They're not on my side. They've deserted me. But there is one who uh, wasn't ashamed. Verse 16, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, he was in, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Now, that's a wonderful testimony, actually, of someone who came to Rome to find Paul. We're, we're used to the idea that you can find someone wherever they are, as long as you've got the right app on your phone, or you, know, you can text someone and say, where are you? And they go, oh, I'm here. Uh, but of course, back then, they didn't have that. How would Onesiphorus find Paul languishing in prison somewhere? It would have been quite an act to actually just find him. Let me read a little bit from Chris Green's book. Chris was a former minister here. Um, uh, he wrote a book about the letter of 2 Timothy. And in it, he describes at one point what it would have been like to have been in prison in Rome for Paul and what it would have been like for Onesiphorus to find him. Let me read a section for you. Uh, the prisons in Rome were squalid and physically dangerous and delays in court proceedings meant that they were usually overcrowded, way beyond their capacity, unheated, sleep was almost impossible on the rough pallets or floor, with no bedding provided. Paul would also have been wearing heavy iron chains, perhaps linked to other prisoners to prevent anyone escaping. The iron reacting to the prisoner's sweat rusted, making their flesh rot. The heaviness, weakened limbs, already short of food, and, as many prisoners commented, the constant noise of chains on stone was yet another factor, making sleep impossible. Food beyond a meagre prison ration was barely enough to sustain life, it was the prisoner's own responsibility. But how could Paul, alone and cut off in Rome, arrange that? Lack of access to water meant that prisoners were not just filthy, but frequently unrecognisable from the caked-on dirt and matted beard and hair. For who would trust violent prisoners with access to a barber and his razors? Clothes rapidly reduced to rags in such circumstances. It's no wonder that prisons were, not, were associated not only with execution, but also with death from disease and not infrequently suicide. One further obstacle lay in Onesiphorus's path as he traipsed the back streets of Rome, trying to locate the prison which held Paul and identify him among the many thousands of prisoners. The prisons were airless and unhygienic because they were largely windowless. Obviously, that prevented prisoners from getting out, but it also prevented much light from getting in. 
The more secure a cell was, the less light it would have had, and an underground cell would have had none at all. Onesiphorus was searching for an unrecognisable pool among thousands of identical wretches, often in the pitch dark. No wonder Paul comments that he was, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Onesiphorus had performed a heroic labour of love. What kept him going? Why would Onesiphorus have kept going day after day, having tried to find Paul, not found him, keep going? I and mean, it would have been a risky thing because he was associating himself with, uh, with Paul. Could himself have ended up being charged? Well, he wasn't ashamed. Unashamed of Paul's chains because they were there. He was there because of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me. Be like Onesiphorus. And we too should be unashamed. Unashamed to stand alongside those Christians in Myanmar. The pastors of the churches in Iran. And other countries, Afghanistan, where Christians are persecuted. We should stand with them. Unashamed of them. And unashamed of others who proclaim the gospel. Maybe it's easier to think about those abroad, we think, well, they're further away, I can be unashamed of them. But what about that other person at work or at college or at school? Someone else who you know is a Christian and they've said something and people ridicule them. You're prepared to stand with them? You might think, oh, well, they've done it in a silly way. They've been foolish in the way they've done it. Well, maybe. But is that a reason to keep your head down? Actually, we should be unashamed of them, shouldn't we? and prepared to stand with them. Paul's instruction to Timothy, be unashamed of the gospel and unashamed of him and to join him in suffering. It's interesting, isn't it? In this letter, Paul's writing, he's more concerned about Timothy than he is about himself. The greater danger, you see, was not for Paul, Though actually he was on trial for his life and would be executed. Paul's saying actually the bigger danger is not me, it is you, Timothy. Not being prepared to stand up for the gospel. The danger is that you'll be ashamed. What about for us? In this world, where is the greater danger? Is it in Afghanistan and Iran? Well, I'm not saying there's no danger. But surely the greater danger is us in the West, where it is relatively easy, where we can still meet, we can still proclaim the gospel, and the danger is we will be ashamed of the gospel. So Paul says, be unashamed. Unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of him. And he says, join me. Join me in suffering for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, please uh, strengthen us as we read this. Father, we read of Paul urging Timothy to be unashamed. And Lord, we confess often we can be ashamed. Ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Jesus. And we can be ashamed of fellow Christians at times. But Father, we pray you would help us to be unashamed of the gospel of those who suffer, 
and that you would help us to be ready to come alongside Paul and suffer with him for the sake of the gospel. Amen.